This is Unstructured. Today I'm really excited. We're joined by Chris Voss. He wrote the phenomenal book, Never Split the Difference. You probably have seen him around. He's has an amazing career, retired FBI negotiator, and currently the CEO of the Black Swan Group. How are you doing today, Chris? Fantastic, man. How about you? I'm doing great. I've been really looking forward to this interview, and I've got to open it up with the most important question. All right. You're originally from Iowa. Iowa, small-town Iowa boy, yeah. And you grew up there all the way to adulthood? Well, you know, do we ever become adults? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just wondering, for a guy from Iowa, which is kind of mid-country, you sort of have a, a New York tone about you. How did that happen? Yeah. In the Army, we have a thing that the longer you're in the Army, the more Southern you start to sound. Uh, right. Okay. Is that is that the case with the FBI in New York? Uh, well, probably to some degree. I mean, when I was there, I started out uh, on the street. Uh, first of all, I was part of the terrorist task force the entire time. So my partners were always cops while I was there. Mm. And then my first couple years there, uh, we were on the street together all the time. I was in a surveillance unit with the cops and on the street and you encounter people on a regular basis that a local accent gets you farther than, uh, mm. than a country accent. <laughs> well, you, you do talk about mirroring, um, where you repeat the last, um, three words or uh, important point. Are you a natural mimic? Um, I'm, uh, what I am is whether you would define this as a natural mimic at all. My primary sense is my hearing. That's uh, your primary sense is where your brain gets information from first. About 60% of us are, uh, it's our vision, about 30% hearing, about 10% is kinesthetic taste, touch, smell. Mine is hearing. So I hear things first. And I think that had an impact on me hearing the accents. And then, you know, I, I try to, you know, I want to blend, you know, like the cousin Vinny line, like you blend, right? You know, I was trying to blend in. <laughs> So can we dig into the history? I know that you're from Iowa, and I think I've heard something about time at in Kansas City as a K- KCMO, yes, Kansas City, Missouri. So how did we get there? How did we get from Iowa? Did you go to school, then become a cop in KC? What happened? Yeah, no, uh, Iowa State University was where I went to college, very affectionately known as Moo U. It was an agricultural <laughs> school. All right. I went there because my big sister went there, and I wanted to be far enough away from home where my dad wouldn't make me come home and work on a weekend. Uh, so it was Iowa State, and uh, but then at that point, I knew I wanted to be a police officer in a in a metropolitan, a larger metropolitan area, Midwest. You kind of got your choice of Kansas City, St. Louis, and Chicago. Um, just making a decision first. Chicago's cold; they got some badass weather. In Chicago. <laughs> Who's out in the middle of the winter time? The fireman and the cop. True. But then, while I was in Kansas City, or when I was in Iowa State, and I started asking people about towns, everybody raved about Kansas City. They just raved about what a great town. It was. Hmm. So you know, I went down there, put in my application for the police department, got a job. Now, were you primarily a, a beat cop down there, or? Did you go quickly into being a detective? Yeah, and I started out uh, start out as a street cop. Um, they kind of like you to have three years on the street before you do anything else. I was on the verge of being transferred to the SWAT team when I had applied for the FBI uh, after about my second year on the police department. Just got interested in federal law enforcement. The FBI job came in literally two weeks before the transfer to the SWAT team would come through. So it was, you know, fate, the universe was guiding me in another direction. What was your degree on your initial one? Just a business degree, which I think, you know, there, there are a couple and, and, and a couple of degrees you ought to have, at least as a dual major. I mean, business, I took a business degree because I figured it'd be flexible. You know, everybody's got to be business oriented. Sure. Um, so I wanted to learn business principles. I thought I wanted to be a cop, but I wasn't sure. So I wanted a degree. When I started, I had a sociology degree, and I remember thinking there are a lot of people with sociology degrees out of work. <laughs> so I took a degree that I figured would be flexible. It ended up being, you know, it worked for me. It was good. Yeah, and it seems to tie in perfectly with um, running your own company now and teaching at business school at different universities, right? I think so. Yeah, I think so. But, you know, there's some other really good ones out there, like my son. Now. My son is my director of operations. He runs my company. You know, if we were to hire uh First of all, we wouldn't require a college degree. Mm. Um, the most, the the super talented people we know 
they either they have some college or if they got a degree, they got it later in life. Mm-hmm. But then if we were looking for degrees, we'd probably look for uh, business majors, communication majors. We really, really like the idea of communication majors. I mean, people that, that it's it's flexible enough so that you don't, you know, it doesn't, you don't want your degree to narrow your thinking. True. And I, which, you know, it sounds crazy, but it might. So in hindsight, I think a communications degree is probably really good too. You know, that really brings up a good point. I, I've interviewed a lot of different people and I kind of think of this as being a part of a piece, I guess, but, um, influence like Robert yeah. Cialdini stuff, um, yeah. all the way to interrogation with that uh, chase Hughes. He does a lot of military prison interrogation type of things to negotiation. I kind of feel like all of these sort of flow together and I can't help but think that a Zig Ziglar would be a very powerful negotiator, even in the FBI. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of overlap. There's tremendous overlap in all good communication. Um, And all the different things that you're talking about, what a lot of people don't see, there's an information gathering aspect to all of them. And you gather more information, you gather more reliable information built around rapport. There was, I, I, I saw a study a while not that long ago, they finally showed that harsh interrogation techniques were counterproductive and rapport-based interviewing mm-hmm. got more information. So that's, you know, you're talking about your guy who's the interrogator. You, you know, you're going you're gonna to get more information with a rapport-based interrogation as opposed to, I always thought harsh interrogation was stupid. And now they get the data to prove that it is. Yeah, that's definitely true. I, I know um, talking to Chase, he's talked about that too, how a lot of times when interrogating, he wouldn't even play the interrogator. He'd just be sort of the guard who was like carrying stuff over to them or chatting yeah. with them. And, and then in the interrogation room, like he might come in with his shirt pulled out, somebody yelling at him. I'm like, yeah, you watched too much Columbo, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, but he's trying, he's trying to be a regular guy. He's trying to get past people's defenses. That's, that's really smart stuff. Now on that note, where did you get your training? Um, and I asked this because, it's sort of spooky. You are, you have your FM DJ voice. Right. Well, there's a, another guy I know who's also been on the show, a, a lawyer out of Philadelphia named Dave Freeze. Okay. And he knows you. And I don't know where you guys overlap or whatever, but he does the same thing. And it's kind of spooky because I, I, I heard the tone and it almost matched exactly in the beats. And I asked him about it. He goes, we trained with some of the same people. Yeah, probably. I mean, again... There's um, there's overlap in good solid communication techniques as long as you tra- you know it's communication it's two way street so the I think I came across complete by accident I stumbled into the late night FM DJ voice when I was training on the suicide hotline and I did it and the the people that were training me said wow your voice is really good and I was thinking like wow I wonder what I did and then I and then when they told me it was good and it had a good effect then I started talking about it in different places. And begin to hear feedback. Uh, one time, a, a, a certified hypnother- hypnotherapist said, "That's exactly the same voice we use." Mm. Now, all right, so interesting. And now we got the neuroscience. Neuroscience shows, and we experiment with this all the time. That voice hits with mirror neurons in our brain. It triggers a chemical reaction. It's an unconscious reaction. The, it slows and calms the brain. It's an involuntary response by people. So with that voice, anybody that uses that voice, I can make them feel safer. I can make them feel less threatened. And how you feel then sets the tone for how you think. And it, it, you become the first mover, then the other side doesn't even know. That makes total sense. I know he was studied under, from being a kid, one of uh, Milton Erickson's top students. So there's yeah, probably wow. a definite tie. And then you're tied to Norman Vincent Peale. Wow, you doing some research there, brother. All right, yeah. Then that's, a, that's <laughs> well, you you and uh, Donald Trump, right? <laughs> you know, crazily enough, <laughs> I once threw a charitable event at Donald Trump's apartment. I can believe it. Yeah, because we had mutual acquaintances, and that mutual acquaintance was the minister of the church. Ah, there we go. And that's another thing I really appreciate that you threw out in the book. Um, you used uh, Hillary Clinton for one of your quotes, yeah. and then you referenced quite often Rumsfeld's 
um, known knowns, known unknowns, right. and unknown unknowns. And do you want to go into that a little bit? Because I'd like to start digging on Black Swan. I feel like that's sort of the meat of everything you're doing. Yeah, it really is. I mean, and yeah, that, that Rumsfeld quote is one of, the, one of the more famous quotes. And I thought he was a sharp guy, first of all. Interestingly enough, have 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 another mutual acquaintance, although I never met the man. Um, but um, you know, you're always everybody's hiding information at a negotiation, and the unknown unknowns are where the hidden information overlap. You and I are negotiating. I'm gonna hide hold stuff back. You know how much I want the deal, what the deal means to me, what my pressures are, any number of things. We always hold stuff back. It happens every time. You're gonna be the same. You're going to hold stuff back. We're going to have hidden cards. We don't know what happens in the overlap of those cards because you don't know what I'm holding back. I don't know what you're holding back. Those are the unknown unknowns. It's where the unknowns overlap. And once you get your mind around that they're there all the time, then you begin to realize, yeah, well, there's if I search for it, there's a better deal. There's always something better here for me, no matter how smart I am, if I just search for it question on that are there often unknowns that your i hate to say opponent i'd rather counterpart i think is better counterpart. um are there unknowns that sometimes they don't even know about that, themselves exactly well and that's kind of the point since you don't know what i'm holding back you don't know the value of all your information um and that's actually one of the reasons why we're not that much into detecting deception because for you to intentionally deceive me, you have to know it's valuable. That's what makes you flinch. I ask you a question. You look up and to the left or up and to the right. Or however, you've got four or five tells. Everybody has four, five, seven tells, which is a whole separate issue also on how uh, good interrogators detect the truth. We don't detect deception. We te- detect the truth. That's Those aren't the same things. But if you don't know it's important, you're not going to give me a tell. You're only showing me tells and stuff you know is important. And so if there's information you're holding that you have no idea it's important, and I'm only looking for tells, then I'm going to miss that. Mm, okay. And not everybody projects. No, not everybody projects. Um, but, you know, it's also sort of the lack of projection is projection. Like if you, <laughs> if you, if you never, um, Detecting truth, like mm-hmm. the way a polygraph works. I say to you, what's your name? What day is it? Where are you? Sure. That lays down your baseline for tr- telling the truth. Now I start asking you questions, looking for flinches. Mm-hmm. Um, if you never come out of that baseline, that either means you always tell the truth or you never tell the truth. Makes sense. And it's more likely that you never tell the truth. <laughs> because, you you know, like you said, the lack of projection. You've trained yourself to not react to anything. Okay. So if you never tell the truth, now I'm like, all right, this guy does have something to hide. Because you're not going to go that way unless you get something to hide. So have you studied body language as well, then, in what you're doing? Not per se. What... Because, again, there's so much body language to keep track of. Okay. You know, what I, what I really need to do is I need to get a feel for how you tell the truth. Okay. And what I'm really looking for is alignment. Like okay. if all of a sudden, if I ask you a question um, and, you do, and you give me some body language that I never saw before, mm-hmm. I don't have to keep track of that. I just know that you did something new. It was a... Um, Julian Chesimard is a, is a future from the Black Liberation Army, been hiding out in Cuba for a long time, uh, accused of murdering a state trooper after she was busted out of jail. Oh, okay. I We're talking about the 1980s. She's still, she's still a fugitive from the New Jersey State Police. Mm-hmm. A reporter goes down and talks to her in Cuba. I remember watching the interview. And she's having a wonderful life in Cuba. She's being treated really well. She's free. The Cuban government historically has been where a lot of American fugitives hide. Chesimard isn't the only one. Sure. And not the only revolutionary. I mean, there's some white-collar crime fugitives hiding down there, too. So happy. And every time she asks a question where the the person interviewing her, the journalist interviewing her, where she has to think and remember the answer, 
she looks hard straight to the right. And, and that's mm-hmm. what she does when she's recalling a, a legitimate memory. So mm-hmm. she's laying down her, her pattern and telling the truth. And he finally says to her, all right, so there's an allegation did you, that you killed the state trooper. Did you kill the state trooper? <laughs> she looks hard to the left before she <laughs> I'm like, all right, sweet. Uh, I, I don't need to say anymore. You just. So that one actually does work. Uh, not to name drop again, Chase Hughes, he does the behavioral um, table of analysis and he'll deliberately record interviews. Then he goes over the video and over the video. Right. And he has a, as, as he puts it, and I'm thinking you would agree with this. He looks for things that are interesting. They don't necessarily mean a specific thing. It's just they're reacting oddly. And then he adds levels to all of these, Right. but he uses the tape so he can, pause, go back, and just really leisurely look at every movement. I imagine you're live and you can't really do that. Or do you? Do you record the calls? Uh, uh, well, hostage negotiation calls or live yeah. business calls now or like... All right, so um, actually your brain can, with enough practice, you, you when you get a bad feeling, you don't know what it was. I mean, that's mm-hmm. why you know the guy you're talking about, he says it's interesting. Mm-hmm. He just noticed something that jumps out at him. He doesn't really know what it means, but he's he's cat- cataloging this stuff. This is why our gut feelings work so much more accurately and so much quicker than our conscious mind. So the short answer is yes. Sometimes we're not used to processing all the data. It takes us a while to get good at it. That's why you have, what was it, up to seven people on a call? Yeah, we used to. Yeah, we used to. You give me seven people, I'll give you an aspect of the communication to pay attention to. When, I, when we're in a business deal now, um, I never do an important negotiation without at least one other person involved with me because I'm going to miss stuff. And I got the person there with me. I got my wingman, usually my son, um, who's going to he's going to he's going to catch the stuff I miss. That's interesting. And w- when you're doing that, do you guys team up with each other to or I'm not, I hate to say good cop, bad cop, but that is sort of proven or or push in different ways? Well, no, uh, what we do is, um, it's not good cop, bad cop, but the listener is desi- the listeners there to hear what the other guy missed. And also, if nothing else, the listener's job is to display empathy. Like if I get, if I get a, a basic agenda, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick to the game plan. Points I got to get across, points I got to listen to. I may forget to pay attention to the relationship. Because I'm thinking about what I have to say. I'm thinking about the stuff we've got to bring out in the open in order to make a, a good deal. You can't make a good deal without being assertive. It's not possible because otherwise you're you're making the other side guess what you want. Mm. And that's not a uh, – having the other side guess what you want is not a great way to get what you want. <laughs> you got to tell them. Sure, sure. And so in the process of telling them, though, you might be a little overly harsh. You might be overly blunt. You may not have said it in the best possible way. We get a little mm-hmm. defensive when we're trying to be assertive. We might feel attacked. We might be concerned. We might have our guard up. So my wingman is there to make sure that somebody cleans up with some empathy. Somebody makes sure the other side feels heard. And, and we had a phone call that I thought was going to be very contentious just about two weeks ago, and it almost got contentious. But at the very end, it, without even realizing that I hadn't shown enough empathy, my son goes, you know, you guys don't have to deal with us. You guys have been working really hard. You got into this because Chris has got a relationship with your CEO and their friends, and you, you guys have been drug into a business relationship based on friendship, and you put yourselves out for this, and you've, you've done a lot for us. And and they just went, thank you for saying that. Oh, wow. Okay. And that helped you seal the deal then? Yeah, it helped us. It, it was the reason we moved forward productively from that point on. Now, you started talking about empathy early on with um, Chris Watts as a bank robber. And right. I don't know if anybody has pointed out the parallel that Chris Watts is a really bad name to have now. Interesting, right? Because of his first name or? Both. Chris Watts. Uh, You had Chris Watts, a bank robber, and then there was Chris Watts in Colorado that decided to murder his pregnant wife and stick and 
two daughters. Oh wow, that's <laughs> that's when I get by me. Yeah, it Boy, just for, all you, for all you kids out there named Chris Watts, I mean, you know, go by <laughs> Christopher instead. At least, at least lengthen it. Use your middle initial. <laughs> Definitely. If you're comparing business now with FBI, then what have you run into now that has taught you lessons or or that has changed your opinion from before? Well, it's really kind of the other way around. Um, it's not that my uh, the farther we get into business negotiations, the more and more and more aspects from end to end on hostage negotiations apply. I mean, so much more. There was stuff. One one real big one is the number of false opportunities for business that are out there are astounding. Any, any, anywhere from 20 to 80% of the business opportunities that come any business's way are false opportunities. They're people who have already made up their mind and are going to are look and they're just doing due diligence. So contact the company for a competing bid. Okay. Or they'll contact the company because they want to try it themselves and they're hoping the company will give them a lot of information so they can do it themselves. Hmm. So and there was um there's a book out there called The Challenger Sale. And okay. it's a uh, it's theoretically it's very sound. The only problem is they don't tell you how to be a challenger. But one of the things that they that they discovered in their data collection was that, and I think the number's low, that's where they said 20% of the inquiries that businesses get are not legitimate inquiries. They're due diligence, which hmm. means somebody calls up a company and says, hey, what's your package? What's your price? How do you get stuff done? What do you offer me as a consumer? And they have no intention of doing business with that company. They're just mining up for information. How do you cope with that? We got a way. We got a way to qualify them right off the bat. I mean, initially, instead of being optimistic, we recognize that that's there, and we have a very, a very simple protocol for inquiring with them whether or not it's a legitimate op- opportunity or whether or not they want to, uh, they really want to do business with us. And it, it re- really revolves around asking visioning questions. If someone has no intention of doing business with with you. And you say, all right, so how do you envision us working together? If they go blank, they don't plan on doing business with you. Mm, okay. Because they haven't envisioned it yet. Okay. Now, that's why I think the number is much higher than 20%. Because they may think they're open to doing business with you. Um, I was on a telephone with an attorney recently where his client wanted me to coach him. She'd read my book. She wants me to coach him. So I get on the phone with him and I say, you know, you've been, you've been uh, doing what you're doing for a long time. Long time. Why in God's name would you ever listen to me about how to negotiate better? <laughs> and it was this long hesitant. It went, well, why wouldn't I? And that's when I knew that he had no intention of ever listening to me. Now, I asked some follow-on questions to confirm my data, which I didn't need to. But I said, okay, um, because see, if if he'd have thought about it, he knew that that's what the call was about. So if he had any intention of being coached by me, when I said, why would you do that? Uh, He would say, well, yeah, you know, like uh, we, we need to schedule some other calls. Um, I probably need to look at your material. Um, there's no shortage of stuff for me about the web. So he said, yeah, I already watched a couple of your videos. Mm. He would have already done some implementation steps. Now, what, what, what was the follow-on information that I needed? I've been told a long time ago, and we found this to be absolutely true. If I'm addressing a crowd of 100 people, I'll say, how many of you here have ever bought a book to try to get better at something. How many of you ever bought a book, took an outside class, done anything to get better? Anybody who raises their hands, they're my customers. If if they don't raise their hand, you know, the, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. If you've never bought a book to learn how to do something, if you've never attended a class 
to learn how to do something. You're probably not going to start now. Mm-hmm. That's just not how you live your life. So I asked this attorney, I said, have you ever read a negotiation book? Have, no. Have you, <laughs> have you ever, have you ever gone out and bought, he's a tax attorney. Have you ever taken any classes to do anything to get better? Have you ever spent any time investing in yourself other than learning tax law? No. Now this guy's, <laughs> this guy's been an attorney for 25 years. He ain't going to start now. And that's when I said, and, and he got really mad. I said, look, <laughs> you're not prepared to be coached, and I'm not prepared to proceed. And I ended the phone call. Do you run into people like that? Uh, there's a syndrome of people who will seek out an expert, not to learn from the expert, but just to prove to the world that they're as smart as that expert. Right. They're looking for confirming data. And that ha- and that's exactly what exactly what I'm driving at now. They're looking for confirming data for not listening to you, and so they're going to misconstrue what you've said and say, "I've already done that." I mean, there's all sorts of indicators of closed-mindedness. You know, there's a, there's other little indicators. Adam Grant wrote a book called Originals. Adam Grant writes phenomenal stuff, mm-hmm. and he's got a test early on for what. Uh, how to how to tell uh, originals are coachable is what it boils down to. Coachability is a trait you can test for. They actually test for it in professional sports now. They get an athlete who's doing really well in the minor leagues, no matter how talented he is. If he's not he or she's not coachable, they're not going to make it in the majors. And so they test them for coachability, among other things. So Adam Grant's got a quick down and dirty test on openness. What's your internet browser? If you're using anything other than the default browser, if you've got Google on your laptop, Google or Firefox on your laptop or your phone, anywhere, anything other than the browser that came with the device, which is either going to be Internet Explorer or it's going to be Safari. Right. So first of all, when I, when I, when I read this, I went and switched my browser on my iPhone from Safari to Google. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> I, had, I had Google Chrome on my my laptop and not on my phone. Right. So I'm like, all right, at least, I, at least I'm half there. I'm partway there. <laughs> That's a goofy test because I could tell you right now on desktops, for example, I use both, but I'll use Chrome as a browser to play flash because it's got it built in, then I can run Safari clean with no additional things and half the crap on sites won't come up. See, you've done some experimentation and searched for answer instead of sitting back and just trying to make what you were given work. True. And that's, that's exactly what was behind it. So then, then I like, all right, so this is interesting. I did a down and dirty test with uh, the class I was teaching at USC. 54 students. All right, so for all you data collection freaks out there, I know that you need a sample size of at least, in your world, you need a sample size of at least 100 before (laughs) before you're happy with the results. Well, I don't care. I had 54, so there. (laughs) Just take it twice. Uh, Yeah, I I doubled it, right? I doubled the result. So I I asked all my students, I said, I just, you know, what's your internet browser? And then I lined that up, those answers, with how my students performed. You know, what was the browser of choice for the A students all the way down to the worst students? Mm. Most, but not all, of my A students didn't take the default browser. There were a couple A students. They were in the minority, mm-hmm. but there were a couple of my top performers that still accepted the default browser on whatever their machine was. A couple, minority, but they were there. Hmm. Every single one of my worst students <laughs> took the default browser. Not one of the worst used Chrome hmm. or Firefox. So you could be a top performer and not be that open. It's just harder. Sounds like it's mostly a concern of a lack of curiosity. Yeah, you know, I it, it could be a lot of things. I mean, it could be curiosity. There's some people 
that their answer is, I just haven't worked hard enough. You know, I think that's how the hard workers, you, 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 you really need both. You need to be a hard worker. You need to be coachable. If you're lacking sure. in either one, you're going to hold yourself back. But just because you're coachable, just because you're open, doesn't mean you're going to succeed. You still got to do the work. That makes total sense. Now, pivoting away from that, I wanted to discuss with you the idea of we're kind of going back into the black swan, but you discuss being across from somebody and being able to talk to them, look at them, and see the reactions will give you a better picture of negotiation. However, you learned everything almost exclusively on the phone. I don't think you were face-to-face with your counterparts in the FBI. Yeah, right. So how do you mitigate that? Well, most most of the data that you would pick up visually, most of it's going to go into their tone of voice. You just got to start looking at it. I mean, there's there's still an issue of alignment between what's said and how it's said. Okay. Now, the person on the other side, if I can't see him, they know I can't see him. Right. So whatever body language, their body language is going to be less guarded. But if I just slow it down and I'm willing to cover the same ground from different angles, then I can vacuum up whatever I'd missed that I would have Hmm. gotten on the visual data. Plus, on top of everything else, my primary sense is my hearing anyway. Right. So it's less effort for me to dial into tone of voice than it is for somebody whose primary sense is their, their vision. Is it sometimes better because you can only focus on one thing and you can completely focus on that versus maybe being distracted by a, a bunch of environmental things that are happening? Yeah, well, it, I mean, focus under any circumstance is going to be better. And then w- when, you start, when you start throwing all this stuff together, which is another reason why you, know, you shouldn't be in an important conversation without a wingman. Because there's actually between uh, what's said, how it's said, and how they look, mm. there's more data there than one person can keep up with. I mean, sure. it's not possible for me to pick up all the data by myself. Oh, absolutely. I I feel that when I'm interviewing because yeah. I'm looking at notes, I'm scrambling, I'm trying to listen to everything you say, but I'm still trying to keep things on track. Right. Get back to the note. Oh, you said something important. Let me note that really quickly here on the side, et cetera. Having a, a second host or whatever would almost alleviate some of that because they could be doing something. Oh, here's a note. And then they could interject a question. Exactly. And I could gather my thoughts and, and potentially react. And we could ping pong back and forth. So right. I'm assuming it's similar. It, it's exactly it. And that's the difference between what we would say negotiating at the same time and negotiating together. You know, you, you can both be engaged in a communication process and not be doing it together. You're doing it at the same time, but you're not doing it together. What you just described would be people working together. Okay. Which is the ideal thing, <laughs> right? It is, but most people don't do it. Most people, when they negotiate in teams, they say, all right, you talk about price. I'll talk about terms. Uh, you talk about billing. I mean, they carve mm-hmm. up the negotiation and then they're negotiating at the same time, but they're not negotiating together. They're not carving up the communications coming from the other side. That's that would almost be too scripted, wouldn't it? Because and, and, and it is, and and it is, and that's why people miss so much. If each has a different aspect of the business, they're there to talk about. They're not helping each other at all. Now to pivot completely out of this, this is called unstructured, after all. Yeah. When you were in Haiti you were talking about negotiating or you were negotiating with Haitians. I don't know if you were actually physically there and getting the price down to the nice number of what, 47, $47,051 or something like that. Yeah. Now that was cool. How you were talking about getting that number down. However, this was while you were in the FBI. Yeah. Yeah. I was coaching. I was, I was coaching negotiations. Every international kidnapping was a coaching situation. And I can coach from anywhere. I might coach from my house. Okay. Now, do you ever do any of that still? No, that's, no. that's all behind me. There are other people that handle that. I mean, there's been, there've been a couple of cases I've been involved in very briefly since I left. But the other thing too is, um, you know, the security company shows up. They're not going to risk a guy that's got my resume sticking around because I'm not going to make their people look good. They're going to take <laughs> over. Then we'll move on. I didn't know if you might do it. Um, 
for corporations. No, we don't do that anymore. No. Oh, okay. Okay. So back to it though, you paid the money or at least offered to, I thought the FBI did not pay. All right. Yeah. Great question. A couple of caveats. First of all, we're running a sting operation. I mean, okay. it's the same reason you, you you have a bank teller give money to a bank robber. First okay. of all, you don't want the bank teller to get killed. Right. Secondly, the money then becomes great evidence. Now, you give a, a bank robber bait money, you don't open up the vault, give them all the money in the vault. But you do want to give them some money to get them out of there. And in reality, it'd be great if we went back to his hideout where the rest of his gang was waiting and they cut the money up. And then you okay. swoop in, you got the serial numbers, you go scoop everybody up. Okay. Or the so, die pack or whatever. Yeah. So first thing, we're trying to get bait money in out there. Secondly, the U.S. government did not pay money. That doesn't mean that we won't allow money to be paid. Uh, now, we're not going to allow money to be paid stupidly. If it's going to go downrange, we're going to want to do two things. We're going to minimize it because it might be a while before we catch up to the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And we're going to want to be very engaged in a process so that we record the conversations. They slip up and they talk about other people. I mean, there's a massive amount of evidence to be had. We had, we had one kidnapping who worked in Trinidad where we had the suspected negotiator in custody. My colleagues did. I wasn't there. Oh, wow. And they, they didn't know for sure that they had the negotiator, but they taped the calls. So, you know, they walked in, they sat down and played the tape for him and just stared at him. <laughs> and he said, okay, you got me. Oh, wow. Excellent. So, the, you know, the, the process turns out tremendous amounts of information. The, the U.S. made this an acceptable policy back in 2000. <laughs> and it survived to this day through every presidential administration, because once it's explained to them, you know, from Bush to Obama to Ray, uh, to Trump, once it's explained to them, they go, oh, that makes sense. And the first time it was actually applied, it was a kidnapping gang operating in Ecuador that kept hitting oil company platforms. They liked to hit the platform in October, kidnap a bunch of people, get a bunch of money. And they kept getting away because the Ecuadorians couldn't catch them. So they ran it as a sting operation. And that was the last time they did the kidnapping, because not only did they round up the kidnappers, they round up 50 co-conspirators. Oh, perfect. They took their entire organization out. And that and that group was never heard from again, because every one of them was either dead or in jail by letting the money to be paid. And then they followed the money. And they caught them all. Oh, that's sweet. You know, five guys hit the platform, but there are 50 people involved in the gang. Hmm. And that's why we rounded up 50 people after that case. That's smart as hell. And thinking about it, the fact you're negotiating so hard makes it feel more legitimate to them as well, right? thousand percent. And you're not, you're not saving the victim otherwise. We had, see, emotional intelligence is so stupid, it's everywhere. We had a saying that was a thousand was completely valid in kidnapping because commanders would say, when are they going to let the victim go? And we'd say, when they feel like they've gotten everything they can. Mm. Then what's the operative word? When they think. Yeah, when they feel like or they've feel. gotten everything they can. Not when they did, but our, our, our response was, oh, they only have to feel like they worked really hard? Perfect. We'll make <laughs> them feel that way. Pay attention to how they feel and you win. And you do that by wearing out their cognitive ability. Absolutely. In certain very strategic ways and really in ways that would be normal within within the course of a kidnapping. You know, it's it's normal for the family to be scared. So we want our family to be scared on the phone. Well, and I'm sure that's not too difficult for them to accomplish. No, no, it's not. No, I mean, and so you know, what are what are our strategic advantages in a normal interaction? And we just play those up. You're using what I think is awesome—a kind of a combination of skills. Like, there's a higher level um, principles that you're almost exploring to explain your knowledge. I don't know if that makes sense. Are you familiar with Jonathan Haidt? No. Okay, he's an author, and he talks about the writer and the elephant. Dan and Chip Heath also talk about it. 
essentially the elephant is your emotions and the writer oh. is your um, cognitive mind. And we always make our decision and then try to justify it cognitively after the fact. Yeah. Thousand completely thousand percent. We make a gut instinct and then we try to decide that's it. That's absolutely what happened. Well, he wrote a book called the uh, happiness hypothesis and the basic principle of the book is we're doing a lot of brain scans and things now, and we're able to light up and say, Oh, look, they react this way. Or this philosophy is proven out and we can show it in the neuroscience. Yeah. But he goes, well, guess what? Buddha talked about that 2000 years ago. Right. Christ wrote about that in the Bible. Right. Now I'm actually going somewhere here with this, but you don't even have to. It's fascinating as hell. We talk about this all day long. <laughs> you, um, you learned the whole, how am I going to do that from a Pittsburgh drug dealer? <laughs> you did your research. Now, is this a case where you can, you're learning all this from a Pittsburgh drug dealer and then teaching it to Harvard professors? Is that similar to the principle, like with height, where you have all this knowledge? It's just knowledge. It's just people know it on a gut level and you've spent a lot of time kind of backing it up with the science. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, some of it is a sequencing issue too. Like I was, I was presented with a problem that I, that I knew somebody else had solved and I couldn't figure out how they did it. You know, we had, we had a kidnapping in the Philippines. Like, uh, you know, we never got our hostages on the phone. I daily proof. The best form of proof of life is get a hostage on the phone mm-hmm. um, because there's no better proof of life, but we, we would defeat ourselves in advance. We'd, We'd never asked for it or try to get it because we thought, well, they're not going to do it. It's, you know, I told a business group the other day, I said, if you, if you're thinking strategies and somebody on your team says, we can't ask that, that's a non-starter. You need to get that person off your team. Mm. Cause when somebody says it's a non-starter, it's not, they're not telling you it's a non-starter. They're telling you they don't know how to do it. Gotcha. So we didn't know how to get hostages on the phone. We're in the middle of a kidnapping. And I find out that we hear from a source that one of our hostages has been on somebody else's phone. And I'm like, what the frick is going on here? And I, I told my boss, I said, what in God's name is happening where one of our hostages is picked up on a phone? And he said, well, no hostages on a phone unless somebody's given proof of life. And I remember thinking like, how the F is anybody getting a hostage? We can't, they, God knows who's doing this. And I, you know, so I got this in my mind. Somebody's getting a hostage on the phone when I thought you couldn't do it. And then we flash forward to the Pittsburgh drug dealer case that you're talking about. And I'm listening to the tapes and one drug dealer wants to know if his girlfriend is alive. And instead of saying, I have to know she's alive or you have to give me proof of life or any of the other nonsense. He just says, Hey dog, how do I know she's alive? <laughs> and a dr- it's a how question, right? How, how am I right. supposed to do that? It's a how question. It's revolved around the world. How? And, and I hear the tone and the other drug dealer change immediately. And he goes from being in charge to being in a defensive problem-solving mode, which means he doesn't know that the upper, upper hand has just shifted. And he says, well, I'll put her on the phone. <laughs> and which I'm is like, so perfect. Yeah, I'm like, wow. What the one drug dealer did was he asked that, not just a how question, but within context, it was appropriate for the situation. Because when you're away from the phone, they would say to each other, how do we really know she's alive? Yeah. So if you would say that to each other, it's okay. The other side knows that's a legitimate question. They know it is. You're not making up questions. So how do you ask the questions that are legitimate, right. but that give you the strategic advantage? And that was that was a breakthrough moment. Yeah, that seems to be one of your core, core elements. Like th- It just opens everything up. It's non-confrontational. Right. And it does enlist the other side to have to work with you. Yeah. Yeah. Because then you make what you want, the path to what they want. Like you shift things out. You know, what you want is not an obstacle. It's a mean. So we, because we, then we'd say, well, if we don't know she's alive, how do we, how are we supposed to pay? Right. And the thought of plants in the other person's head is like, Oh, if I show the hostage is alive, I get paid. <laughs> and now suddenly it's a it's a different ballgame. They think they're in charge. You're getting something you, you never asked for. Yeah. that's and, and that's what I love about that. And on that note, you brought up um, back to the Black Swan, the uh, horrible case with um, Cliff Van Zandt, I think it was, who worked it. 
but the bank robber Griffin, who uh, yeah, we we Griffin in in, in uh, Rochester, and Cliff didn't work it. Clint didn't work it. He was there. Oh, okay, okay. But he did not negotiate. He was not a negotiator. He was there. Okay. And he chronicled it, and he brought it to the world as chronicled. But the and I've got the negotiator's name in the book. Clint left those guys' names out when he told the story. But Clint was not a negotiator at, at uh, Rochester. Well, you in a very recent interview with uh, Jordan Harbinger, the topic came up about right. you're saying if they don't give demands, you've got a real big problem. Exactly. So I want to dig into that a little because I felt like that would, maybe we can you know flesh that a little. What do you do? Well, you, now you understand what the conversation is. You know, um, you gotta, you gotta know what the currency is. You know, the most dangerous negotiation is one you don't know you're in. What are they really after? Mm-hmm. Um, if there isn't a demand, then, then suddenly, uh, the acts that are taking place are not a means to the end. They are the end. Okay. And you have to, and you now you gotta recognize that and understand now what are my options for disrupting the current plan? Do I have any options for disrupting it? But don't kid yourself as to what's exact, what's actually at stake. And that goes to, to any business negotiation at all. Are, are people there because they want information or because they want to work with you? Are they there because they want to prove that you can't help? Mm-hmm. You know, you got to really understand what's at stake. And rarely is it only as presented on the surface. Okay. So you have to start immediately digging to find a black swan. That's probably the most important thing at that point. Right. Yeah. 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 What's, what are the unknowns? What's being hidden? What's the other side hiding and and what, what does it indicate? They're really trying to get done. This is cheating, but if you're going to say one principle and I'll wrap up with this, the one principle that somebody should take away from your book that's actionable and will not solve everything, but at least get the conversation going or get the uh, negotiation unstuck. What would you? The amount of power you get from hearing the other side out first is ridiculous. Most people are driven by what they want to say and they can't think about anything else. And the act and, and once heard, there's a tremendous relief. If you're really dying to have your say, so are they. And the amount of, relationship building to start with that you get out of that is phenomenal. So it's a great way to build a better relationship. On top of that, there's a really good chance that some of what they want, you think is a great idea. Hmm. And if you can then tell them that how brilliant they are <laughs> on that stuff, because you know, no deal, a deal is only as good as its implementation. Right. How is the other side going to comply? What if it was their idea? What's their compliance then? Much higher. Because now that if they don't comply, their ego's involved. So hear the other side out, you know, make them feel like they won, and you can laugh all the way to the bank. <laughs> so just listen. Yeah, listen. Well, interactively. And it's one of the reasons why we, we call it tactical listening. Listening. I mean, we know, we know too much about what to listen for mm-hmm. and how to deal with it than we did when people first started talking about empathy to begin with. Now we know what to listen for. We need, we need to listen for what's their, what's their perceived loss. Loss drives decision-making. Perceived loss drives decision-making more than anything else. People will go out on a limb to avoid a loss. They will not go out on a limb to accomplish a gain. They're not as far out on a limb. They'll go, they'll go twice as far for loss aversion. So get their loss of aver- figure out what their loss aversion is, and then then have the same discussion with them to see if you can get them to see it a different way. Okay, I, I forgot the term for it, but somebody said find the uh, the slice in their neck or something like that. Yeah, you know it's interesting. Is that there's a there's uh, it's it's the same thing as listen for their pain. Yep. You know what's the pain that's driving them? It's loss. Now. Where can people solve their pain and learn more about negotiating from you besides the book? And by the way, I do recommend everybody get the book. I've only read it twice. All uh, right. 
Yeah. Well, buy the book on Amazon. It's the best price. But we've got a we've got a um, negotiation newsletter that we put out once a week. It's short and sweet. It's digestible. It's concise. People love it. They think it's a perfect supplement to the book. It comes out on Tuesday mornings, and people love it because you you know you need a supplement. And plus, it's the gateway to all of our. We have training announcements in there. Hmm. We're doing one day training events across the United States. The schedule for that comes out there. Um, a variety of things. We give away a lot of free content. The newsletter's free. There's a lot of other stuff that's free. I had a friend that used to like to say, if it's free, I'll take three. <laughs> okay. So if you're greedy, you like free stuff. And the, the newsletter, uh, the best way to subscribe to the newsletter, you text to the number 22828. Now, that's the number you're dialing. The message you send in the text is FBI empathy, all one word. Don't put a space between FBI and empathy. FBI empathy, one word. Text that message to the number 22828. You get a dialogue box back that asks for your email address. You sign up to everything and say it's the, it's the gateway to everything we have. Okay, and to help everybody who is currently running or mowing the lawn or driving, I will put it in the show notes so you can check it out. Beautiful. Well, hey, Chris, this has been freaking awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, man. It's my pleasure. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more, please check out unstructuredpod.com. There you can find all the episodes, free subscription information, and most of the players and even how to contact me. I would love to hear from you. You can even set up a 15-minute call with me about the show or anything you like. Again, it's at unstructuredpod.com, and I hope to hear from you. Now, in the spirit of sharing... Here are other shows you may want to consider checking out. Thanks again. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that, that really scares me. Yeah, I had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money is a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com.